0: Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdee and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia, And to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes, at nicolaverdy.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Keridwin Dovey to Books, Books, Books to talk about her most recent book, Life After Truth, published by Viking. Keridwin is a Sydney based writer of fiction, creative nonfiction, and in depth essays and profiles. In 1999, she went to Harvard University as an undergraduate to study anthropology and environmental studies. She's won numerous awards for her fiction, which includes her short story collection, Only the Animals, and her highly acclaimed novel, In the Garden of the Fugitives. Her non-fiction includes a memoir on J.M. Kurtsey, Writers on Writers, and she also writes regularly for a number of publications, including The New Yorker, The Monthly, and Good Weekend. She has very recently won the 2020 University of New South Wales Press Bragg Prize for Science Writing. Keridwyn, congratulations and welcome to Books, Books, Books.
1: Thanks, Nicole. Thanks for that lovely introduction.
0: Now, Life After Truth is about the 15-year reunion in 2018 of five Harvard graduates who lived together and were very close friends when they were there as undergraduates. Now, they're all in their late 30s. Some of them are married, some have kids who they bring to the reunion, and they all have careers of one sort or another. You were inspired to write this book, I gather, following your own 15 year reunion at Harvard, where you had won a scholarship to study anthropology as an undergraduate. That's just a little bit of background. Could you uh, now read a short extract from the book for us, please?
1: Um, I'm just going to read a section that's um, in the uh, voice of the character Rowan, who's a happily married but rather harassed uh, dad to young kids. Um, And this takes place on the Friday evening of the reunion long weekend. The private dining room of the restaurant within the Charles Hotel, one level beneath the hotel lobby, was even more lavish than Rowan had imagined. The decor made him feel as if he were in the lost underwater city of Atlantis. Instead of windows, there were tanks built into the walls, filled with psychedelically coloured fish. The backlighting sent ripples of bluish light across the room. Before the endless platters of food had started arriving, there'd been an arrangement of marine coral on their table, which the server had spirited away like a merman. It was the first official night of reunion weekend when friends from all classes, though tilting toward an older, wealthier crowd, met here for an early dinner before going to their respective cocktail parties, each held at a different venue around the university. The 15-year cocktail party later that night would be held in the Barker Centre, which reflected how low they still were in the hierarchy of reunions. The building had an attractive outlook, but it was a far cry from, say, the main reading room within Widener Library, which some historian or other had described as the most ostentatious interior space at Harvard, mint green inlaid panels on the high curved ceiling and gold lampshades. For that privilege, they'd have to wait a couple more decades. Across the room, twirling squid ink pasta onto his fork, was Frederick P. Rees II. Rowan eyed him spitefully. What did the P even stand for? Some waspy name like Philip or Petersham or Prendergast? He watched as Fred chewed and wished that he could make things happen through the intensity of his feelings. Hatred was a bizarre emotion. When it was really upon you, in you, as it was in Rowan right then, it felt almost cleansing. Like love, it was a hot emotion. No wonder the common expression for it was that hatred bubbles like oil in a pan. Perhaps that's what it felt like to murder someone out of pure hatred, like spontaneously combusting.
0: We'll start with a relatively minor character, but just to explain that extract. Who is Frederick Reese and why does Rowan hate him so much? He
1: um, is the son of a despised newly elected U.S. president, um, and he is one of Rowan's classmates, so from the same class of 2003. Um, but has only recently achieved this uh, dark notoriety as the son of the president, um, and has become the president's senior advisor, and so sort of you know entwined in his uh, evil, toxic politics as well, and the class of 2003 is trying to make sense of the fact that one of their members um, is a really bad guy and, uh, you know, kind of measuring themselves against him um, but also being called to account for their own hypocrisies and their own blind spots in terms of their, um, you know, ethical stand that they're prepared to take.
0: We're not going to spend long talking about him but I have to ask you to tell our listeners. He's loosely based on someone that you were at Harvard with. Who's that?
1: <laughs> um well, I was at Harvard with Jared Kushner um and yeah I I didn't base Fred on Jared, although I did know Jared a little bit um, at college, but I just took the idea really of someone who is the son, in this case not son-in-law, of a very political and very divisive political figure um and someone who's always had you know kinds of extreme privilege, Uh, from his days at Harvard as an undergraduate but then has accrued even more power um, as he's gotten older and yeah so Jared I don't actually even know if Jared was at our 15-year reunion there were sort of rumors of sightings and things but certainly many people in um, our class were angered you know by um, what he had done and in the Reunion Red Book, which is like a um, book that's sent out to all the alumni beforehand where you write an update on your life, but it can be in any kind of form. So it's not just a straight, you know, hello, this is what I've been doing, but people interpret it in all kinds of ways. So some people write poems and limericks and letters to their parents and, you know, to-do lists and they quite, um, I mean, it's really compulsive reading. Uh, And a a few very brave uh, souls in our class, I think about 10, wrote at the end of their entries, shame on you, Jared Kushner. And so I do use that as well in the novel, this idea of sort of trying to shame a person who's been a part of your class. And it's a fairly small class, like 1,600 um, in each of the undergraduate classes. So it's small enough that it's intimate, that people, you know, it's not like a vast... um, cohort that you spend that time with and so there's a close identity that you sort of carry forwards but then when there's a bad seed among you it's a, it's a, it just throws people a bit into disarray.
0: I want to ask you about that red book your novel begins with the red book entries from each of the five main characters who we're going to talk to uh, talk about in a moment but I did want to ask you for something um, that really interested me and I know that when you were an undergrad at Harvard you worked in the Red Book office and one of the things that you said was that you were fascinated so there these reunions take place is it every five years?
1: In five years yes.
0: And so each time there's a new reunion people do an update for the Red Book and you have said that you were fascinated by the way those entries changed as the years went by. How did they change? Yeah, it was really
1: interesting as a because I was about 19 when I got that job. So it was one of my campus jobs. And it was really interesting to be thinking about aging and time passing when, at a time when, you know, you don't believe you're ever going to get older, that the same laws of uh, time will apply to you. But I noticed as the entries would come in and my job is to collate them and edit them, um, was that, you know, each five years that passed, people would get a lot nicer. And um, and that we're all the same. I mean, in a way, I found that very moving. Um, you know, everybody, we all think we're so different but and, you know, unique. But, um, you know, the five-year entries were always about the same things, a lot of posturing and bragging about, you know, law school and um, fellowships and things. And then, you know, around the 10-year, still a bit of that, but the wheels are, you know, kind of coming off a bit more. And then by the 15-year, I had noticed that, yeah, people start to share a bit more of the truth of their lives um, with others. And I'd noticed that when I was working in the Red Book office and then when my 15-year Red Book came in the mail, I was happy to see that being confirmed. And, yeah, people just, I suppose, being uh, prepared to open up a bit more about, you know, the sadnesses and hardships that they face. faced. Yeah, just that not everything had worked out in their lives and maybe enough time had passed and there was enough distance between them and their youthful selves that they were prepared to kind of acknowledge that for the first time and I found that lovely and it was the same
0: in person. And mm-hmm. less of a need to boast and to brag and to impress upon each other what they'd achieved I think. you
1: Yeah definitely um, and then as people get older you know in the red books that just keeps going and so people just get warmer and warmer and more and more honest and sort of, you know, by the 50th reunion, they're writing these long entries about, you know, they have three divorces and that they've, you know, been laid off at work and their kids are stuff-ups. and So, yeah, it's a kind of interesting thing about humans that we, it's a, I suppose, um, a nice thing about getting ageing is that we get more honest.
0: Let's talk a little bit now about each of your five main characters. So I'd like to start with Jomo. We know now from his Red Book entry that what he does now is that he's the founder and director of a luxury jeweller, a uh, very prestigious jewellery house that provides uh, upmarket jewellery to the, the high end. What else do we know about him? What's he like?
1: I love Jomo. He was one of my favourite characters to sort of write and inhabit. Um He's really confused about what love means um, and um, it was nice to write a character who hadn't tied up all those loose ends even as he's approaching forty and he's got all this charm and this you know charisma, but deep down there's a longing for you know true connection and love um, and a lot a lot of you know the point of me writing this novel was to look at that pursuit of happiness, which is such a particularly American. <laughs> pursuit isn't it like um they they believe in that um at the fundamental core of their nation and their being and so each of the characters is 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 looking for that you know in their own um in their own present moment and they are failing or succeeding at, at finding it and jomo um is a very important character in the book because he's actually one of the few who does find that happiness in the course of the novel. And I won't give it away, but uh, <laughs> yeah.
0: And he has enjoyed great material success, hasn't he? So he's done an MBA after he's gone on from Harvard, he's gone and done an MBA. And he's a little bit embarrassed because at the time that he was making his applications to colleges, he called in all the favours and the, the people that he could think of. And he actually got a reference from now President Reese. So He did the MBA, he's now making a lot of money, he's very wealthy, he lives in Tribeca, but as you say, his personal life seems unresolved. Let's talk now about Eloise. She is uh, a professor of hedonics at Harvard and she's now the Dean of Kirkland House, which is where they'd all lived when they were students. She's married to a young woman called Bix, who's 10 years younger than her and who was a former student. Tell us a bit more about Eloise, her dreams and aspirations.
1: Yeah, so Eloise is a professor of hedonics, which is the study of happiness. Um, so through her, I got to explore a lot of the things that I've been um, researching and reading around midlife and, um, you know, happiness and what changes and um, not just the self-help stuff, but, you know, philosophy around what midlife um, means and why we tend to have a psychosocial crisis at this particular age, um, and then how one can resolve it. So it was fun to channel that through her.
0: I'm sorry, I have to stop and ask you, why do we? <laughs> <laughs> what is the reason? Um,
1: well, it's interesting because I mean the term midlife crisis was only coined in the '60s, so the, the you know the way we've only put a, a word on it fairly recently. But if you look back at, you know, Jung and Kant and some of the philosophers who were trying to figure out, you know, what it means to be human, um, there is a, a consensus that around 40, if you haven't uh, adopted your mature adult self at that time, then you will be lost forever. Uh, so it's kind of like, I suppose, the cutoff for, um, you know, really taking on the mantle of uh, adult's responsibility and morality and not in a preachy sort of way, but um, there's a line that one of them uses, I think it's uh, Jung, who says, you can't live the second half of your life in the same way that you've lived the first. So this, again, an acknowledgement that um, in youth, we worship many false gods. And um, if we don't put that aside by, you know, midlife by 40, then um, we are not really going to be, you know, contributing members to the human societies in which we live.
0: And one of the big changes that they talk about, don't they, that you referred to through Eloise's thinking is that that second half of your life is one in which self-absorption plays a much smaller role. I thought that was really interesting.
1: Yeah, and I don't know how I feel about that one. I mean, I, I these were all male <laughs> philosophers and you know I've recently been trying to find more about women going through midlife crises and particularly intellectual midlife crises like not just hormonal ones um and I'm not finding very much but I I'm struggling a bit like I had taken some of that stuff to heart in my own life and having just turned 40 but recently I've been like well hang on I've just given the last decade of my life in service of others you know for many women who might choose to have kids, you know, your thirties is just a wasteland of service um, to others. And now I'm like, no, this is my time, you know? So I'm I'm sort of, I'm, I'm a bit confused myself about the advice um, and the whole idea of setting aside the, the ego at this exact point where you suddenly have the confidence to actually do something with it as a woman. I don't know if that's the best advice, but Eloise hasn't really thought through this stuff to this degree she's sort of drunk the kool-aid you know she's quite into that self-help com- community and she's written these bestsellers with names like are you happy now And
0: but she um, hasn't had children so she hasn't just dedicated the last decade of her life to the service of others so true. it's an really interesting yeah. point to make as to whether that's there, that's male specific whereas for women or certainly women who've had children and have spent that time in their 30s as you say serving others whether it's, it's a it's a time for flowering for them Yes,
1: and I think that's why she's having such a dilemma over whether um, she and Binks should have kids, and she's deeply ambivalent. And um, her ambivalence, you know, plays out, um, and she comes to a form of resolution, but it's um, it's a painful resolution for her. You know, it's sort of a closing of a the door.
0: They're all in. The, they're all on the cusp of turning forty at this point. They're all pretty yeah. much mid to late thirties. Let's talk about Rowan now. What do we know about him? What's he like?
1: Rowan's a bit of a like dad bod you know like kind of guy um but a really great dad hands-on dad um you know a a feminist really he's been um by his partner Mariam's side from the beginning they were the first couple to get married from their year and they were very you know and proud of that and built a whole identity around it he's just devoted to her And he's tried to always do the right thing in life and become a principal of a public school in a very, you know, underserved part of Brooklyn and um, has always done the right thing. But what was interesting with him is putting him back on that campus and having him question whether, you know, searching for meaning over money was actually the right call. And usually that's flipped on its head, right, with this sort of midlife narrative. It's again, it's that. You know you'd have a very wealthy character start to wonder where's the meaning in their life. And so I wanted to just flip that around and have Rowan have his you know midlife crisis around. basically, did he not get the same memo as everybody else who went to Harvard that you know with with wealth comes can come you know certain forms of happiness.
0: We'll talk a little bit later about each of the each of those main characters and where they're at and what their thinking is. But certainly, as you say with Rowan, it's as if being back in this environment he suddenly can't help but compare himself to the others who um, certainly Eloise and Jomo and Jules are all enjoying quite considerable material success and he he and Mariam are doing it pretty tough because he's at, a, as you say, he's the principal of, of a public school, he's on a pretty low salary.
1: Yes, and they I mean they go to the extremes of, you know, they bring Tupperwa's along. <laughs>
0: and they budget for for every dinner and how much it's going to cost them. Yeah,
1: and I think the money thing is interesting because I I made sure when I was, you know, creating the characters that I really wanted to represent the class diversity of the students at Harvard, and that was certainly my experience. It's not like a pocket of total privilege in the way that people often think of it. It's not like a Princeton, um, you know, which is an incredibly... um, privileged school that um, yeah, is filled with the sort of stereotypes of privilege that we imagine for an Ivy league. but um, Harvard has all this you know financial aid that it gives away. And so even the American students who come there are often from lower and middle class families. And so all of the characters have come to Harvard as undergraduates through um, some sort of fellowship program. Or their parents have wiped out their savings in, you know, saved their whole lives in order to send their kids to college, which is another American reality. Yeah, so it was, um, it, yeah, I just really wanted to make sure that the characters um, were not, you know, stereotypes of, of, of American wealth. Really?
0: Yeah. Let's talk about Mariam, who Rowan is married to. You mentioned that they married at graduation. They actually met and fell in love on their very first day at university, right, when they were 18. And they, they were together. They were like the stable couple who were together all the way through university. And now, 15 years down the track, they've been married for 15 years. They've got two little daughters. One's five and one is one. And Mariam has made the decision to basically be at home and not to work outside the home while they're young though she does work one day a week what does she do on that one day
1: well she had trained as a as a chef and um there are hints that she'd had a much more glamorous sort of you know working life before she had kids working for a kind of domestic goddess type in manhattan and um yeah, so she has with this one day um, is basically volunteering at a at a local um, bakery that's designed to teach at-risk teens how to bake, you know, bread and pastries. And um, she's aware of, you know, the irony of that, that these bakeries then go on to serve all of the gentrified parts of Brooklyn that um, have pushed other people out. But, um, yeah, it's her only, you know, bit of... Um, it's her only attachment to her previous identity and um, the outside world, and I think you know for her she she's just she's tired um, and she's desperate for some other kind of you know meaning. And she's done all of the mothering work with with a lot of joy, but also you know and dedication but is also starting to feel a little bit bitter about it because, you know, realising how all of her peers have chosen to do it in such radically different ways and, again, questioning her her own choices. So she's, um yeah, she's having a bit of a hard time too and she's also going through a religious conversion um, and starting to wonder if she believes in a God of some kind, although she refuses to, you know, put a definition on that but then this is complicated because she once persuaded rowan when they were younger to give up god for her and so she can't share this with him even though he's her soulmate. um so she's she's a mess as well
0: <laughs> what we see with mariam and rowan's relationship too is something that i sense is a subject very close to your heart which is the joys of parenthood, but also the challenges. We see the ups and the downs that that both of them talk about this sublime love and sublime joy that they feel for their children, the two little girls, and that they feel about being parents. But at the same time, they both acknowledge that there's a lot of hard work, there's a lot of drudgery, and there's also a lot of worry. And you talk about something, I think it's called joyful apprehension. Would you like to talk a little bit about that, what that is?
1: Well, this is a concept, um, I renamed it, but it's something that I first read about in one of Brene Brown's books. I think it's The Gifts of Imperfection, um, where she talks about looking at her children sleeping um, at night and this feeling of, you know, complete love that overcomes her that's immediately followed by fear of the worst kind of loss that a parent can imagine. And so she comes up with a slightly different term for it. But I, I was so struck when I first read that because it was exactly what happens to me when I look at my kids sleeping. And I'm always, you know, wondering why does that love and that joy that immediately shade into terror of loss? And that is the double bind of, of parenthood, um, that, you know, the joy is never without this premonition of a, a dark terribly dark side to it that to feel something so much it means you are opening yourself up to you know the worst kinds of pain um but yeah i also i i've been parenting for almost 9 years um and i've never written about it in fiction i think in a way because i've maybe internalized this horrible you know stereotype of of that you know to write about domestic life is somehow not serious literature and it's something i'm determined to change now in my own writing i'm actually um publishing a experimental uh, co-written novel with a friend who's also a mum at the local school called motherhood the musical in a couple of years and we are looking at um, motherhood through the lens of absurd the theater of the absurd it's just the perfect sort of framework for the performances of motherhood and the way that we all have to put on this mask and then we choose strategically when we let that mask fall or slip. And so I'm really interested in a kind of radical honesty about motherhood because I think so much of the damage that's been done um, in terms of women feeling pressured into being a certain kind of mother is because no one even admits that they are wearing a mask of motherhood or that it is a performance of any kind. And so not, you know, so eliding all of the labor and invisible work behind it, which women do as much as men. I have to say, um is is part of the violence that's done to to women and to mothers. So, yeah, I think mariam is is grappling with some of that stuff, and um she's willing to be honest and open about her own experiences of motherhood, but has been burned by sharing that with other women. And so she's learned this strange way of you know having this constant monologue of judgment of other women. And their choices in her head but the, has set herself the external rule of as long as she doesn't say it out loud then she's not a bad feminist. Yeah.
0: So you give an example at one stage where there's a, an issue arises about breastfeeding and at what age you should stop breastfeeding your children and she thinks she's done a pretty good job because she's breastfed them both to the age of one which frankly is pretty amazing um, but somebody makes her feel bad about the fact that she stopped and there's just a lovely little passage where you make it clear that she really wants to fight back and to to argue, but she's decided she's going to keep all those sorts of judgy. She has those thoughts about mothers that breastfeed and mothers that don't, but she's not going to pub- be publicly judgy about it. She's going to keep those thoughts to herself. And I, I think that I think that really does resonate. And I think the way you portrayed their relationship, the impact on their relationship of having small children, um, as well as the joys and the tedium, Will really
1: resonate with anybody that's raised young children. That's yeah, and also with anyone who's been in a long term relationship, because that's another thing that I'm really interested in. Um, it's so underrepresented in literature. Um, you know, we again, and in terms of the midlife narratives, it's usually around, you know, well, usually men kind of buying red Porsches and leaving their wives for younger women. Um, and and then for women, I don't know what the narratives even really are, but maybe just kind of dealing, coping. Um, but I, I'm with Rowan and Mariam. I also wanted to explore some of the, um, you know, sense that the intimacy that grows and grows over a, a long-term relationship, like they've been, you know, married for 15 years and, um and just again, just question some of those assumptions that we might often bring to what that means, that it doesn't even when life is hard and even though they're, you know, struggling under the weight of the um twenty-four seven parenting that they're doing, their bond as a couple is really solid and um and enduring. And yeah, it's, that's I, I find that very um interesting to look at in fiction because there's not many examples of it.
0: No. Let's talk about the fifth character, the fifth of the main character, Jules, who we know the least about because we don't hear from her personally. The way we learn about Jules is we see what other characters think about her and occasionally we hear what she says. Who is she? What do we know about Jules?
1: So Jules is the other um, figurehead character, I suppose, um, uh, that I, I took from some of my own experience Natalie Portman was the other famous classmate that we had in the class of 2003 so um the Jules is not based on Natalie at all um but again just taking this idea of uh, um She's the light side of, of fame, you know, comes in already famous as a, as a student and forms this um, beautiful bond with this friendship group. But at the same time, they're all aware of the strangeness of, you know, the relationship between them because of, you know, by dint of her fame, um, there's always a barrier there. And so, um, yeah, looking at Jules from out the outside, you know, she's never a part of the... Um, Fully a part of the group she's always standing a little bit outside and so the novel reproduces that because you only as you say learn about her through the perspectives of the characters who the narration is focalized through but they love her and um, you know she's she's kind of the person around whom the friendship group orbits and they're aware that if that were to break down that you know the group would all disintegrate um so she's a very important character in that sense, but is going through her own um, struggles with work, is unsure as a, um, you know actor approaching middle age, what sort of role she should take on. She's trying to take on more experimental roles, but that's not always working out. And then there's hints that she's also becoming more politicised in um, you know, the kinds of work that she's wanting to do, which again puts her at odds a little bit with some of the other people in her friendship group.
0: And she's very beautiful, isn't she? She's a a, a beautiful blonde woman. You describe her a number of times in those terms. And one of the characters, I think it's Eloise, reflects at one point that she she was already very famous as a teenager when she'd made these films. In her 20s, she really hit even greater realms of stardom. She was starring in very high-profile films. But one of the things, inevitably, she must be starting to think about in her late 30s is the extent to which a career built at least in part on her physical attractiveness must be um, imperiled, I guess, by her ageing. So that's, that's presumably something else that's going through her head.
1: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, they're all aware that she is strong as nails and um, probably the bravest one of all of them and always has been. Um, you know, they speak of her as having a hardness in her mm. that's a necessary resilience to life that they all really admire. Um, And so she's not falling to pieces in the sense of, you know, crumbling because she's lost something that the outside world had valued, but she's trying to reinvent herself on her own terms. And that's, um, yeah, that's where she keeps getting caught on uh, what kinds of artists she should collaborate with and what sort of art she should be making.
0: Keridan, it seems to me there's there's so many strings and so many themes to this novel, but it seemed to me anyway that first and foremost, it's a novel about friendship. You've spoken about the tightness of the bond of people who meet like this at a critical time in their lives. They're 18, they've just left school. Many of them have left home for the first time. They're away from their parents for the first time. And there's something, um, Mariam thinks it, but it seems... To reflect, I imagine something that you've been thinking about. Mariam thinks to herself, there was something so precious about having lived in close quarters with friends while you were young. You could never be false with them later in life. They remembered the core of who you were. Would you like to talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, that is an emotion that I have felt. Um... I have two very close friends from um, college, both American. I haven't seen either of them in eleven years, and we don't even Skype much or, you know, email much. We have a no guilt policy on communication, um, but it's it is it's that sense that when you've been young and vulnerable with someone, and they've seen you at your very, you know, worst in many situations, that when you're young and you're trying on all these identities but they've seen you stripped bare, you can never be false with them. Um, and it, they kind of, yeah, I I find that a really lovely thing. When I'm with them, you know, I can be nothing but honest because they have known me, you know, that younger self before all the other identities get laid on. Um, and it's something that I value more and more as I get older. And I think the is that special quality to living together, you know, as students. And that's what's so magical about that American college experience is, you know, I had four years living in these dormitories with peers, with friends, um, you know, boys and girls, and um, eating all of our meals in the dining hall and hanging around in our pyjamas and studying together and being silly together and, you know, just, weird intimacies that you have like i can still remember the smell of my roommate's shampoo from that time you know it was just sort of sensory stuff that you know when you're all living your lives right side by side um you become very bonded and um yeah it was a really magical experience for me to to have that and um in a way i feel like i've it's put me in a position where i long for that sort of communal living you know once you've experienced it it's hard to not have it and I often find myself wondering why we don't have like parent commune set up so that you could do that you know with when you've got young kids and sort of share the labor and um, my husband often jokes with me that I can't wait until we can put our names down for a retirement village <laughs> because finally that might be my chance to you know experience a community. Most- hate the idea of you know losing their independence but I can't wait
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering and it's something again that you you consider through your characters I was wondering about the extent to which friendships like that change over the years at one point you have Eloise thinking to herself she does a lot of the thinking um I'm they all do, but she's thinking <laughs> about old college friendships and she thinks they're really funny those old college friendships and one of the things she thinks is You could love somebody forever, but no longer like them very much. A bit like her and Rowan. Now, of course, with her and Rowan, there's an undercurrent of competition there and of of an academic or an intellectual rivalry, which it seemed to me was always there. But it does seem as if their differences are more accentuated 15 years down the track than they were. I suppose now that he's married, he's had children, he's been through experiences that she hasn't. She's made a lot of money through her success there's an undercurrent of envy there from him. How do those friendships evolve and change over the years, do you think? Um it's a good
1: question. I hmm. Well, I suppose the um, reverse of what I just said about you know the, the truth of who you are and that you can never be false with, you know, the truly close friends who knew you then is that you also are sometimes forced into intimacy with people that you're just not compatible with, in when you're in those sorts of you know communal living situations, and um, and that can be a wonderful learning experience, but it can also be hard. Um, and so there've been experiences where, again, people that I you know slept in the same room with in a bunk bed, literally um, for a whole you know two years of my life, and then you know, you can end up not speaking for 10 years. Um, and then uh, respecting when you do come back together that where your lives have taken you. And that I suppose, again, the honesty of that is that, you know, you don't have to pretend anymore that you're best friends. But, mm. you know, but there's this kind of, yeah, tenderness and love um, that you feel for each other, but that doesn't mean that you are yeah, you don't have to force it into a certain mold anymore. I actually read this really poignant study recently of um, some kind of primate. I can't remember if it was orangutans or apes, I don't know. Um, But it was a study of aging. And when they turn 40, they stop trying to hang out with the other apes who don't, Want to hang out with them, and so it was a study of friendship choices in forty year old apes and it was so interesting because it 's exactly I think what i 'm trying to say there is that I guess at forty like you know that you have feelings and desires to be friends with people, and some of sometimes it 's an old glamour that still accrues to someone that you know from high school or university that you just were desperate to be their friend. But you get to forty, and you like actually, I'm going to spend my time with the people who want to be spending their time with me as well.
0: Let's talk then about this whole idea of the reunion. Is it, it you use it as as a catalyst? I think as a you point out that it's a, really a time for the self reflection for um, for people to think about where they're at in their lives and how happy they are about that. You said. I think, that the reunion becomes a built-in ritual as time passes to take stock of who we once were and who we are now. That's not always a pleasant experience, of course. I'd like to talk about how some of your characters feel about where they are in their lives now, 15 years on, and that the sort of questions that you're asking are, have they fulfilled their potential? Have their lives turned out the way that they thought they would when they were 18? Are they content with who they are and with their lives? Do they have regrets? Let's start by talking about Eloise. So one of the obvious concerns she has, I think, is that she is a professor of hedonics, but she's also made a lot of money out of selling these sort of mass market self-help books. And she has some doubts herself about whether she's sold out by writing books like that and making a lot of money from them. Would you like to talk a little bit about that, how she feels about where she is in her life?
1: Yeah, Eloise is, um, so she's only recently become tenured at Harvard, so she's also, I think, a bit sensitive about the fact that she's never really left the campus. Um, You know, she was there as a student, then she did her PhD in the same psychology department and now, you know, has clawed her way into this, you know, much sought tenure um, and has become the mistress of uh, Kirkland House with her wife. And I think she feels a little bit and in terms of that competition with Rowan as if she hasn't properly lived. And so the tension in her is that, you know, how can she tell other people, um, how can she help other people to help themselves or find happiness when she's unsure if she's actually um, lived an adult life herself? She stayed pretty close to that, you know, uh, safe heart of, of the campus. Um, and it hasn't helped that she's married someone who's 10 years younger than her, And so she feels also a little bit alienated in terms of the generational gap, the micro generational gap between herself and, and thinks. Um, so she's, yeah. And her career is, is, uh, you know, self-help books, um, are wonderful. Like they've helped me a lot. So I'm certainly not, you know, throwing the baby out with the bathwater in that, but, um, as an academic, I think she's also um, always having to you know walk that tightrope between uh, what is considered you know scholarly work or work of high intellectual value and then this more you know commercial communicative writing that she actually enjoys doing for people and that has you know brought her money and um, and fame, but also a, a way of communicating that you know she doesn't get as an academic.
0: Let's look at Rowan then, who's almost the opposite. With Eloise, she's asking herself if she's sold out and she's feeling a little bit guilty that she's made so much money from these mass market books. Rowan, on the other hand, he's almost like the most pure of the characters, isn't he, in that he's stayed the most true to his ideals. Here he is the principal of a public school um, in a low-income part of Brooklyn. He is absolutely um, fulfilling his idealism. And you get the sense that prior to this weekend, he was probably fairly happy about that. But all of a sudden, you throw him back into this competitive environment and he starts wondering if he's done the right thing. He asks himself, am I wasting my life? Will I ever be rich? Does Mariam deserve better than this? So it seems for the first thrown back into this Harvard environment and comparing himself to his peers who have done very well financially, that causes him to have some doubts about about his life. Would you like to talk a bit about that?
1: Yeah, he's really, um, he's an interesting one because he is the most principled on the surface of things, you know, has stuck pretty closely to his um, youthful idealism around, you know, being told he could change the world as a young student at Harvard and then has actually gone on to try and live that truth. That there's an ugly part to him that he's aware of and that we see in a scene sort of maybe three-quarters of the way through. Actually, that scene I was reading from, the dinner party scene, um, his uh, ideas have become a little bit uh, contrarian and, you know, he's calcified in his positions in that defensiveness, that sort of moral defensiveness, I think, of people who've always done the right thing but are a little bit annoyed that other people seem to be having much more fun than they have. Um, and so he, there's, a, there's an ugliness in him um, that also plays out a little bit in terms of his relationship with Mariam and what happened on their honeymoon that he's not proud of um, and he tries generally to hide. But, you know, it comes hand in hand with that ability to stick to his principles. There's an intransigence in terms of...
0: Rigidness. Yeah, yeah, he's
1: not flexible in his belief systems.
0: Something else that I wanted to ask you about that I think is is one of the other important questions that you look at here is this whole concept of these. Are students who've graduated from Harvard, sort of the best of the best, intellectually, the most elite, the best and the brightest. And there's this concept that they, from, from the age of 18, when they were admitted, of being told and believing with good reason that they were special. And I wanted to talk to you about this idea about whether that imposes particular obligations on them and whether that makes it very difficult or more difficult for people in those circumstances to feel that they have fulfilled their potential, that they have lived up to their expectations. You said uh, when you were talking about this book another time, I think there's something particularly sad but also poignant at looking at these people who were told they were special at a young age, who are then realising over time that to to be special does not mean to be happy. And there's something lovely in the book where you have, I think it's Jomo, reflecting on what we talked about earlier, the Red Book entries and the fact that people get nicer over time. And Jomo, who, like you, has worked in the office, notices that by the 25-year reunions, people are much nicer. And he says, or he reflects, as if by laying down their sense of being special, they had put down a heavy load they were tired of carrying. What I wondered is this. Everybody, or most people, I think, at that midpoint of their lives, or at some point of their lives, questions whether they've lived up to their own ideals, whether they've fulfilled their own potential, whether they are living the life that they thought they'd lead, whether they are content with their life. But I'm wondering if what you're saying or suggesting here is that people who have had the opportunities that these young people had and who have had that education, that sense of being told at a young age how special they are, whether that does put a particularly heavy load on them.
1: I think it does. Um, I mean, I'm aware that, you know, it's it's a load that most people would be happy to bear. And it certainly is not worthy of much sympathy because, you know, it comes with all sorts of advantages and um, affirmation, um, which you can then end up drawing on for the rest of your life. But yeah, it does intrigue me. The people who, um, and even when I was there as a student, you could see the tracks that people were on. And um, so I was doing social anthropology, which was a very low stress, uh, uh, concentration to pick but I would watch the people who were doing pre-med and pre-law and computer science which were the most high pressure kind of high stress uh, tracks that you could be on and it was like looking at you know a different sort of species because their experience of Harvard and the quality of the time they had there was just I can only imagine just incredibly stressful and they just worked so hard um and then you know went on to med school or you know law school or whatever it is that they did or often consulting, which was just another kind of treadmill of stress and, you know, awful kinds of work that would have been removed, paid well, but not, you know, making it okay. worth the while. Yeah. So some of them, I, I could see them in their twenties, actually prematurely taking on this, you know, um, responsibility to work hard, to be stressed and and, and not have a, a youth really, um, and I so I'm interested both in the idea of, you know, being told that you're special at a really, really young age and then for the rest of your life feeling like you it's all downhill and that you you get further and further away from that. Um, which is probably, you know, half my class's experience. And then the other half maybe feeling like they didn't have a youth because they were told they were special and then as a result had to prove that every single day, um, when they should have just, you know, maybe been having fun or, you know, having a sense of of freedom. Um, And then what that does to them in in mid-age, if, you know, they decide to stop living in that way or once you're on that treadmill, you you can never get off it, which I suspect is actually the case or takes a huge effort to get off that treadmill um, once you've gone that far down it. Um, So, yeah, it is the sense of fate being set and sealed for these students, um, having been plucked from you know obscurity and put down in this campus, that there is a sense that the rest of your life is kind of set up by that. But not only in the positive sense that people think of it, um, but yeah, it's a it's a your life narrative is not quite your own again after that point. And I I sometimes think you know with my sons, would I would I want them to. Experience that, and I, I don't think I would. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that kind of um, sense of election uh, of this, you know, specialness is—is—is is, is something I would wish upon them.
0: Erin, my last question is about the form and the subject matter of this novel, as compared to your other fiction, in particular. So. It marks a departure. Your other fiction has definitely, and I think you've talked about this, been heavier, I guess, is one way to describe it. Um, you've been more concerned with overtly political issues. And you've said that this novel was a creative experiment for you, a challenge to find a voice that was warmer, more accessible, less anguished about big ideas like power, abuse and complicity, and prepared to accept that it is okay to write a novel about the minutiae of everyday lives. And that was something you talked about, I think, a little bit earlier today. What prompted you to make that change? What was it that freed you to feel that you could write a novel about the minutiae of everyday lives? I
1: think it's just a factor of... um... Of getting older. So it's for me, a, a beautiful thing about this. And that's why I keep, you know, ranting on about the intellectual midlife crisis, because it, for me, it feels like this wonderful thing where, um, it's, it's painful, you know, to, to have to break out of those things and to think about why you did it in a certain way. And, you know, for me, Um, I think it's been about reinvestigating why I write and why I wrote those earlier books in the way that I did and who was I really writing them for. Um, Who was I trying to impress, you know, by writing them in that style, even if I wasn't aware of it? And it's been um, very freeing to sort of just care a lot less about you know who 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 I'm writing for, and to accept that, um, yeah, all these different voices are in me, and I do want to express them all. And it
0: means it is a risk. I I think this is a very literary yeah. novel. You explore; it's different from your others, but I wouldn't say it's any less literary. They're,
1: yeah, no, it's that's why it's so hard to find a language for it, right? It's it's a different voice, but I don't know how to really characterize that it's not that this is commercial and not literary which no, is what people yes. assume when you say i'm writing in a
0: different voice but and that that would be completely uh, incorrect to make that assumption i think it's probably what what your father says that if you've established a particular voice then if you choose for whatever reason to write in a different voice somebody's going to want to make a point about that but there's mm. no way this is not a literary novel um I think it's wonderful. It had so many themes that resonated with me on so many levels, and I, I really believe that will resonate with many people because of the things we've discussed. This whole issue of looking back on your life and reflecting on whether you've achieved your or fulfilled your potential, whether you're living the life you want to be living—that's an absolutely universal theme. And it's a bit seems to me a little bit like this group of people are in a um, what's the word, a petri dish or something, because they were at Harvard and they had particularly high expectations on them that they put on themselves and that others put on them. They feel those things perhaps more acutely, but they are things that we all feel. They're very universal themes.
1: Oh, well, thanks, Nicole. That means a lot to me because, yeah, I think that's exactly why I wrote it. And in a way, like to play on an Eloise writing, you know, self-help, I did think about this novel as I was writing that I hope maybe it's a bit like self-help fiction, that maybe, you know, if you enjoy the novel, you come away with a few more um, ideas around how you want to, you know, process these things in your own life. And that is the beauty of fiction, isn't it? Like it's this rehearsal for real life and you get to try out relationships and um, thoughts and feelings but without hurting any real people and um, it's why I value it so much and I know all great readers you know like you um, it's why we couldn't live without fiction because how would we know how to live without it
0: what's not to love about that really (laughs) congratulations
1: thanks Nicola. thank you for having me on
0: thank you for listening to books 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 If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleaberdy.com.au, to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Aberdy, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.